The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for September. Coming up, we discuss some of the equipment we've been looking at for review over the last month, and we also discuss some of the new announcements from IFA, which was held in Germany. And joining me on the podcast this month, we've got Russell, uh, we've got Mark, and we've got Steve. Good evening, guys. Hiya. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. And to kick things off, uh, we've had a busy uh, old month this month with new projectors. It seems that the uh, under £4,000 range of projectors is growing on a daily basis at the moment. And uh, recently we've had the Sony HW30ES. And uh, very recently we've had the Panasonic PT85000. We'll come to the Sony uh, in a moment. But Steve, we were at Panasonic um, at the time of this recording on the Monday of this week. And uh, we had a a, a brief chat with the engineers and uh, a quick demonstration of the projector and its uh, technology. Uh, so what were your thoughts? Well, I mean, I must admit, Phil, uh, I, I was genuinely quite impressed with it. I mean, obviously, you'd seen it uh, in, in L.A. a month or so ago, um, and it was my first chance to see it on Monday. And even though they actually were projecting it onto a wall because they couldn't use their uh, actual screen in a demo room, it still looked really impressive. Um no crosstalk at all in the 3D, which was excellent, reasonably bright image. Uh, I, I was genuinely very impressed with it, particularly at that price point. Um, and if, as they said to us at the time, the light path is actually sealed on this projector, which means it's not likely to you know, suffer from dust blobs, which is quite often the case with LCD projectors, then I think this really could be a, a stonking product um, when it gets released. I mean, obviously, you've just been reviewing it, so you can probably give more detail in terms of its actual performance. But uh, personally, I, I was genuinely quite impressed with it. Yeah, the uh, the Panasonic's going to have a tough fight on its hands, I think, in the marketplace. Uh, there's a couple of projectors still to be released, one from JVC, which is the X30. And we also have the Epson uh, TW9000 and the TW6000, which are, are also going to be around that price point. So... The Panasonic really has to pull out the punches, I think, and, and have technology on there which is exclusive to them. And obviously there's the 200-watt Redrich lamp, which was under 4,000, um, but it is a, a, an extremely good patented design from Panasonic. They build it in-house, and it has more red energy in the spectrum against normal UHP lamps. So where normal UHP lamps have very little red energy and a lot of uh, yellow and green energy in them, uh, this balances things out. Of course, there's other things uh, on there, Steve, like the transparent D9 LCD panels, which are actually Epson panels. Uh, so that's the only thing that Panasonic haven't designed, which are in there. And they run at 480 hertz, which is obviously means that when it comes to 3D, they can keep the glasses open for 6 milliseconds as opposed to, to 4 milliseconds for 240 hertz. So uh, that was one thing that we did notice. And, and I've since put it up against the JVC and obviously I reviewed the Sony as well. It's very bright, even in 3D mode. Yeah, that, that was definitely apparent. I mean, even in in, in what wasn't a completely dark room, um, you could see that you, you're getting a pretty bright image. I mean, I, I'm used to the X3, for example, and I, I mean, obviously I wasn't doing a direct comparison, but it seemed at least as bright, if not brighter. So, I mean, that that's obviously one of the big problems with 3D tends to be the, the lack of brightness. So uh, from that perspective, definitely uh, the Panasonic uh, had the edge, I think. So in the review, I put it up against the, the old PTAE 4000, which was 
the projector we've had for the last two years because it's taken two years for Panasonic to release the 5000. Um, one or two little niggles. Uh, obviously, it outperforms the 4000 in terms of image brightness, contrast, dynamic range, black level, all big improvements, and obviously it does 3D. One of the things I did find with the 3D was the transmitter, which is uh, built into the, the actual chassis of the projector. Um, it doesn't bounce off my screen and it didn't work, and it didn't obviously didn't work in the, the Panasonic demo room because they were, they were firing it, had to fire it at a wall instead of the screen to get the 3D to work. And I had the same problem with the Sony uh, recently. The, the Sony came with a, an outboard transmitter, but even then, that wouldn't bounce off the screen back to the glasses to sync the glasses. So there are is ways... That because, Phil, is that because your screen's acoustically transparent? No, it is, it is but be. it uses a lighter 4K material, which, uh, as the name suggested, it's developed for, for 4K uh, in terms of being uh, being uh, transparent, and it's a zero point nine gain on that screen. Uh, it works fine with the JVCs. Have no no problem whatsoever with the JVCs. So I think it's it's a mixture of I think the the screen material and the fact that that I think the transmitters are low strength. I don't think they have enough strength. The, the thing is, when you switch the JVC on, yeah, it floods the room with it. Floods the room with IR because you can't then use your other remote Any, controls. Anything else? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the case of the, the Sony and the Panasonic, I had to use the outboard transmitters and put them at the front of the room facing back to the viewing position so they would sync up with the glasses. But once they were synced up, um, they were absolutely perfect. The only thing is that the, the transmitter is a, an optional extra with the Panasonic, whereas it's the it's the only thing Standard with the Sony. the Sony, isn't it? Yeah, but again, with the Sony, it's so badly made and so light and, you know, you pick it up and you think you're going to break it. Whereas the Panasonic unit is extremely well built. You know, it's 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 made out of plastic, but, you know, it's the build quality is a lot better. It's going to last a yeah, lot we, longer. The Sony one's basically the same one they've been using with their TVs in the past, isn't it? A little plastic strip. But, um, yeah, it, it is pretty um, fragile. Yeah, well, um, it, it's so light that when you connect the uh, Ethernet cable to it, because that's how you connect up with the Sony... Uh, the weight of the cable pulls the the transmitter around, so you can't get the transmitter to to sit properly unless you put a really big bit of blue tack on the bottom uh, and push it onto a, a flat surface. But even when you're doing that, you're thinking, "Oh, this is going to break at any moment," because you when you're putting any pressure on it, you think it's just going to break in your hand. So build quality not so good with it with the Sony. The Panasonic one's a lot better, but we don't know how much that's uh, that's going to cost. So Phil, did the uh the projector ship with the new lightweight glasses? As far as I can tell, Mark, um, it's not going to ship with any glasses. However, when it is launched, and um, if you give me a quick second, I do have the full details um, of the pricing. Uh, uh, so it's going to be priced at uh, 3199 uh, and 99 pence, so £3,200, um, through authorised dealers, and they're going to be running a, a launch promotion with the dealers from the 1st of October, which will include two pairs of glasses and a copy of uh, Guess What on Blu-ray. Not Star Wars. No, not Star Wars. Avatar. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so it, it doesn't come with the glasses, but obviously if they're running that promotion, I would assume, yeah, I don't know for certain, that that, that would be uh, the new 3D glasses uh, from Panasonic, which are quite a bit lighter. Um, and have slightly larger lenses. I used the second generation glasses with my review, um, and I found them uh, fairly comfortable, to be honest. A lot more comfortable than the Sony ones, um, which were still really quite big, and also had a yellow tint 
uh, to the lens, which didn't oh, help nice. with, with color balance. The thing with this projector is um, they did tell us it has been uh, developed in terms of color balance to work properly with the glasses. And obviously those glasses also work with Panasonic TVs. So if you already have a Panasonic TV, 3D TV uh, with glasses, then your glasses will work with the projector as well. So if you're a Panasonic TV owner, you don't need to go and buy any more glasses when you get the projector. Yeah, color balance was, was fine. It, it needed a little bit of, of tuning, but there was a nice little slider in the menus now in the picture menu called color balance. And obviously, if you slide it to the left, it gets warmer. You slide it to the right, it gets cooler uh, in terms of temperature. So it, it, for 3D, it works quite, quite well. Quite, 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 well, so. quite controllable then, rather than just having, say, warm, cool, or normal to choose from for colour temperature. Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit more uh, adjustable. I mean, it's totally unscientific, um, but at the moment, while we still uh, really can't calibrate through the glasses, it, it's a real pain trying to do that. It, it, at least it gives you a ballpark area, and Rec. 709 on there is, is fairly close to the standards. It's not great, uh, but it's fairly close to the standards. The one thing I will say is uh, grayscale out the box in Cinema 1 and in Rec. 709 settings was almost reference out the box, which is almost unheard of these days. Um, so that's, that was pretty good. Sorry, did somebody say that it was shipping with two, pa- two pairs of glasses as a promotion? Yep. So after the promotion, it doesn't? Yep. So it's a £3,200 2D projector. Yep. So it's a £3,400 3D projector. Yep. Okay. like that, yes. <laughs> yep. Am I, am I the only one that seems a bit, like, stingy? Or the only one who thinks that? Um, depends if you want 3D or not. Uh, but they're all, they're all round a I bit. I suppose everything comes with it anyway. At least you, I suppose you can just look at it that way around, can't you? I don't want 3D. I don't want to pay the 200 quid extra, but... Yep. So it's, I mean, uh, it's, still, it's still in the same price point. <laughs> Even after you added the money for the glasses, as uh, say the X3, right, Phil? So. Yeah, I mean it's the same with the Sony. I mean you can you can buy the Sony for two eight uh, without anything, or you can buy it for three grand with two pairs of glasses and the transmitter. So they're giving you an option: you can buy it at less, or you can buy it and pay for the glasses. So technically, it's a three thousand four hundred pound projector if you want it with the glasses. It's a three thousand two hundred. Projector. What's the cheapest 3D telly Panasonic make that ships with glasses? The ships ships oh, with the actual no. glasses is the VT30. None of, none of the other models ship with glasses. Although dealers will do uh, deals on and and so on, but uh, officially only the VT30 comes with glasses. Okay. So it, I mean, it's just one of these things. You know, the glasses cost money until they, they reach a certain mass. They are going to be fairly expensive. Although they have come down since. Uh, 3D first came on the market. I think when 3D first came on the market, it was about £150 for a pair. Yeah. I think they're well under £100 now for... They're about 80 quid, I think, the new range, something like that. Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 as with anything, once it reaches a, a critical mass, then, yeah. um, you know, the, the prices will drop. And once the prices drop, then there isn't that disparity between passive and, and active. With projectors, it's only active um, at the moment in terms of technology. There is no... Uh, passive. So the the lens memory functions, Phil, is, it, um, is that usable in 3D? Right. This was uh, quite a long conversation with the engineers. Quite confusing. Um, certainly a lot lost in translation. Um, the engineer that was there, um, he, he could speak English, but it, it wasn't, he wasn't very fluent in English. Um, the marketing person that was there uh, was fluent in Japanese and was quite fluent in English. So there was quite a bit of uh, losing stuff in translation. So it took us a little while 
to get a head round um, the reasonings for the fact that you can't use anamorphic stretch or the memory lens function with 3D. And it goes along the lines of, one, it's about parallax. Two, is to do with the masking options that come with the memory uh, lens memory function. So if you set it up uh, for 235 in your room and you're using the masking to cover up at the edges of your screen, uh, which a lot of people will do, they'll use the, the side and top and bottom masks, what happens when you switch to 3D is there's no way that they can reproduce that mask if it was side-by-side material. So it took a little bit of getting your head around why it worked that way, but that's the way it works. And because of that, it's impossible for them to have the masking option on side-by-side material because you would have a mask in the middle of the screen, if you know what I mean, with the side-by-side. So that was the the reasoning on that one. In terms of anamorphic stretch, uh, I don't think we... Steve, I, I don't think we got a conclusive answer on that one, did we? It was... Oh, they just basically said that it was, you know, it wasn't active. When you go to 3D, it's greyed out and you can't use the anamorphic stretch. They didn't actually say whether it could do that, but they just weren't allowing it to, or whether, you know, it just couldn't do that. So we weren't completely sure. We also sort of suggested that maybe uh, in the next projector, or even perhaps in this one, they instead, you know, deactivated the masking function when it was in 3D, which seemed, would seem to me would get around the problem of not being able to mask on side-by-side images. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, we, went, we talked for about, about 10, 15 minutes about this, and I have to confess, at the end of it, I still wasn't completely sure what the problem was. But <laughs> yeah. um, uh, as you say, I think a lot of it was getting lost in translation there. Yeah, it, 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 it was one of those things that it's really difficult to explain, and I could see with the hand gestures uh, what the engineer was trying to, to say it, but obviously it was being lost in translation but uh, basically uh, 3D and anamorphic projection or lens memory is a no on this and uh, it's certainly the case with the HW30 as well, there was no anamorphic stretch mode um, there's no anamorphic stretch mode for 2D so there was no anamorphic stretch mode for 3D the only one that I think is going to do it is the JVC X30 from initial information that we've had through, it looks like it will do anamorphic stretch. I don't know about the lens memory function. That's new for the JVCs. I don't know if it's similar to what Panasonic do or not. So we'll just have to wait and see on that one. But we did ask the questions. We got some answers back. When we asked, was it a hardware or software issue? Could they uh, change the projector before it was it, it, it hit the market at the end of the month? And the answer to that was no. Um, they can't change it, but it would be considered for future models. So anyway, if you wanted to see the full review, it's up there, avforums.com forward slash reviews. And there's also a video review for that uh, on our video channel. And also uh, the Sony HW30ES, that review is also up there. And there's also a video review for that one as well. So go and check them out if you want to find any more uh, about that. So moving from the world of 3D projection, I'm sure we'll come back to it again and and discuss it a little bit later on, but uh, we're going to go to Russell now. Russell, it wouldn't be your slot without talking about sub-bass, so tell us all about it. Right, well, um, I've been uh, lucky enough to have another SVS subwoofer through these portals. Um, It's always fun getting one of them in through the door, not only because if you can get it through the door without splitting something, then you've done well. Um, It's because you always know there's going to be a night full of big grins and uh, and this is one of their subwoofers that is one of the ones I've been trying to chase for a wee while actually. It's been out about a year or so uh, now. But basically, I mean, you need to understand that SVS made their name making 
very large, and I do mean coffin-sized um, subwoofers with large drivers, lots of ports, lots of power, you know, um, could seriously terrorise the foundation of your house. But, of course, uh, over here in Europe, where um, the acreage on the carpet isn't so great, um, people have been craving smaller SVS subs, and they finally started turning them out a couple of years ago as, as, as sealed subwoofers. Um, the one we had here, which is called the SB13+, plus SB sealed box, 13, 13-inch driver, plus from the plus series of drivers, um, is currently the top of their sealed subwoofer line. Occupies about a 16-inch cube, which would isn't too large, or at least it doesn't look too large in my room. But the point of it is, is um, it's got their new generation of sledge amps, um, 1,000 watts roughly on tap. But the driver itself in this subwoofer is absolutely mental. They've basically taken their um, ultra line driver, transported the whole thing lock, stock and barrel into a small box. And it's absolutely nuclear in the way it performs. I mean, I can't seriously can't think of anything near it for the price, which punches as hard, as deep, as low and as quickly as this thing. It was an absolute pleasure. And what badge did you award it, Russell? Um, Best Buy. Dead easy. I mean, it probably got there. At the original retail price of 60, about £1,600, I think it was now, but at £1,200, it's a, it's a complete no-brainer. I've had, I've had moderate-sized um, ported boxes that don't hit as hard and as low as that thing did, so you know when they cut 400 quid off the price, um, absolutely stunning value. If there is only one niggle I would have about it is, um, is you can only get it in black. Uh, it's, it's the Henry Ford option only, I'm afraid. Um, so it, you know, a 16-inch black cube on your floor, especially if you've got a lot of wood in the room, does look slightly obvious, especially with a metal grill. But hell, you know, if it's just before, if it's performance for your pound spent, then absolutely great, brilliant. Uh, so Russell, um, you looked at the Velodyne last month. It had loads of EQ tools. Anything on the SVS? Uh, yes, but nothing like as uh, as complex as as you might expect for the price. It basically um, the inbuilt um, digital signal processing of the sub does allow you to apply um, five bands of parametric EQ to equalise the in-room response to the sub, but you do need to measure that using an external program, an external microphone, and then go and dial in the settings manually, measure again, and go back and forth until you get to where you you feel it's about right. Um, it did also... It wasn't quite what I'd call a true parametric equaliser either, insofar as um, they'd basically picked five points within the frequency band the subwoofer covers and preset those filters at those frequencies so whilst you can you could cut or boost to your heart's content and uh, and broaden or, or narrow the filter and um, you couldn't actually move it to really nail a particular frequency that you're having trouble with but that said the end result was still miles miles better than you could get by just wandering the thing around your carpet until it was about right so um i'd rather it was, rather it had that than nothing at all um, but not nothing like as complex as the Velodyne, which is in terms of you know, a, a manual user interface for EQing a sub is still the best thing I've come across. In terms of uh, movies and music, uh, how did it stand up in terms of performance? Was it uh, overwhelming or was it, were you able to tune it in? Uh, to go oh, no, 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 no. I mean, with music, it's, um, I mean, SVS do tend to have this, um, uh, this aura of being sort of like big sledgehammer movie subs, but not a lot of subtlety about them. I think that's probably unfair these days, and it's certainly unfair with this. Um, to, to do movies, to do music, you need a, um, a you know, big headroom, um, 
depth of frequency response, low distortion, and preferably sort of a low group delay. So the, the phase of the sub runs right. If you hit all those things on the head, it will do mus- movies and it will do music well. End of. There's no, I don't, I've never ever bought this idea that you've got to have something different for music reproduction than you have for movies. Accurate's accurate. Um, and um, it's, it's certainly bang on the money with music. With movies, okay, you, you know, you can get these sort of like 15 hertz mental effects in movies that you don't get in music. It doesn't quite reach down to them, but blimey, for a, for a small sealed subwoofer, it don't have to get close. Um, but if you're really into all of that, then the chances are you're going to want to wheel one of the, say, well, even one of SVS's coffin-sized subs into your room and then let rip. But you know, as as a as an all-in-one discrete box, it's absolutely absolutely superb and yeah, definitely on the money. So, uh, one Validine or four of these? Ooh, nasty question. Four of these. Okay, so that's the SVS SB13 Plus, and uh, thanks very much for that, Russell. Uh, so we're going to move uh, from sub woofers back to 3d tv and uh, we were talking about projectors at the start of the podcast around about three thousand pound mark uh mark uh we've got a bit of a bargain to tell people about that's right straight into uh from one best buy to uh, another best buy with the samsung ps 51 d6 900 it's uh, a full hd 3d set um featuring most of the smart tv features found in the high range um eight series uh, built-in Wi-Fi, Freeview HD, Smart TV, all that jazz, uh, all the calibration controls, um, and it really did turn out to be an absolute bargain. You can pick this set up for less than £900. It, uh, it has great blacks, decent um, contrast dynamic range. It calibrated up really nicely. Out of the box, was it was it was reasonable. We've seen better from Samsung's, but it, it was a it was a reasonable effort, uh, and the 3D performance was absolutely superb pretty much up there with the Panasonic um, representation. It was hard to find many faults with it, to be honest. Um, it's it, The occasional little pop of brightness um, changing when uh, a scene, scene light changes occurred. The cadence detection is a, is a bit broken, which is unusual for Samsung. We, we don't often see them slipping up in the video processing test, but uh, it completely failed on the 2.2 tests and only picked up on the uh, more common NTSC 2.3 cadence. Really, very little to complain about, especially for the price, and uh, punching well above its weight. I recently reviewed the D8000, which had the silver chassis and the uh, quad foot. What's the design on the 6900? Well, fortunately, as as far as I'm concerned, it it doesn't share the looks. It's got uh, the familiar 6 Series charcoal, charcoal, sorry, (laughs) grey bezel, uh, and the once sort of slender, transparent strip running running down the outside of it. Uh, And and it hasn't got the what I call the chicken foot stand. It's um, just a, a rectang- solid rectangular, um, deep grey base, which looks which looks far better to my eyes, at least. You know, I tend to agree with you. Actually, I mean, I, whilst I was very impressed with the performance of the the D eight thousand, I have to confess I'm not a big fan of the design, uh, the chassis, and I and I really don't like that uh, that quad foot or chicken's foot, as you call it. Um, so, so in fact, that, that actually would be a positive for me if, if they've moved to if it's got the sort of uh, more traditional darker um, black and charcoal grey. Um, yeah, look, it looked far classier to my eyes. And uh, it, it uh, but the, the the only thing it really lacks um, over the eight thousand is the uh, the real black filter. So during the day, yeah, it was it did okay, uh, but at night I would say it would make very little difference um, not having the the black filter. 
Okay, so that's the Samsung D6900 Plasma TV. Uh, go and check out Mark's review, avforums.com forward slash reviews. And talking about bargain plasmas, uh, Steve, you've been looking at an LG? Yeah, I have. I've actually looked at two LGs, um, the 42-inch PW450 and the 50-inch PW450. Now, these are actually um, 3D plasmas, and, and they're retailing it on well, the 42-inch case just below £500, and in the 50-inch case, just above £500. So we're talking about 3D plasmas that can be had now for around about £500 mark. And, and, I, and I think Mark is actually looking, we're about to review uh, the Panasonic UT30, which will also be in, in a similar price range. So you know, that's amazing when you consider that... Um, uh, it was only probably a year ago that um, plasmas were actually even come, you know, sorry, 3D TVs were coming out at all, and already they've not, fall, not only fallen below the thousand pound price mark. For example, the six thousand nine hundred that Mark was just talking about, but now we're talking about 3D plasmas that are in the five hundred pound mark and below, uh, which is is incredible. Now, obviously, yeah, I think Steve, you can really sort of consider it as a feature now rather than rather yeah, than yeah, that's, that's what we're moving a, towards a now. A feature rather than a defining feature of the. Of the yeah, television. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, 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 the point's coming now when every t- TV you buy will at least be 3D capable, and it's a question of whether or not you want to uh, buy the glasses and, and actually use it for that. In the case of the PW450s, they actually do come with one pair of glasses as well, which is you know even more of a bargain really when you consider uh, that they're at 60 pounds a pair. Um, obviously, if you're buying, um, sorry, Mark. Sorry, I was just going. I was just going to ask. It is an active shutter set, isn't it? As opposed, yeah, to uh, yes, it is. It is active shutter, and that's unfortunately the problem, uh, as you discovered with your review of the PZ950. That's right. Uh, uh, LG's active shutter is it, this year is not very good. I have to say, uh, I found in the review that um, with 3D material. There was there was a lot of crosstalk in both negative and positive parallax. In other words, things that are very close to you poking out of the uh, out of the plane of the of the, yeah. of the screen, or things that were very far in the, in the background. There was an awful lot of crosstalk there. Things that were sort of in in line with the plane of the screen uh, were, were very good, but but anything in front of the screen or behind the screen, if you like, um, did show a lot of crosstalk, and that was a real shame because uh, you know the, the reason you would probably buy the uh, the fourth. PW450 is because it's a very cheap 3D TV, and unfortunately, 3D performance just wasn't there. In addition, it's um, 768p, um, and I think the, U- the UT30 from Panasonic that's coming out is is going to be 1080p. So, you know, uh, really, yes, it's very cheap. The 2D performance was pretty good, and as with all of LGs, you know, it has excellent calibration controls, even for an entry-level TV. Uh, unfortunately, the defining factor really is the 3D performance, and that just wasn't up to scratch. Oh, the black levels on that one, Steve, because I wasn't too impressed with the uh, 950. Shockingly bad for a plasma. Uh, Yeah, I mean, LG have always been weak weak when it comes to black levels, but uh, these entry-level plasmas um, were were very poor in terms of black performance. That's basically the two areas where they fell down were black levels and 3D. Sorry, did you find the glasses extremely shiny and, and to reflect an awful lot? I don't know if they were the no, same No, I, I didn't have the problems with the glasses that you did. I'm not sure if no. they were the same ones. Mine were the, yeah, ones that, the ones that it came with were the ones that look a bit like sort of Michael Caine specs from the 60s. No, they don't. I'm, retro. Just look, I'm, just, I'm just looking at the pictures now. I don't think they were the same ones, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, the glasses were fine. Yeah. It was just the actual 3D performance that was uh, somewhat wanting. And, and I think, to be honest... That's not just a reflection of it being an entry-level TV. I think that all of LG's active shutter displays this year have, have been a, a bit poor in the 3D department. Whereas I think both you and I, Mark, agree that we, we were big fans of LG's passive 3D TVs. So. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so that's uh, another cheap plasma. If you want to go and read the reviews, uh, the 42-inch review is up there at the moment, avforums.com forward slash reviews. And uh, uh, we should have the 50-inch review up uh, by the time this podcast goes out. So go and have a look at those reviews if you're interested in the LG PW450. Now, Russell, if we were to offer you a technology on your TV that automatically calibrated it to industry standards. Is that something you would want? If it could be done accurately and reliably, then I think anybody would be daft not to want it. Well, this year we've seen two attempts at this technology. The first one is Kalman and their version 4 of their software uh, with the Panasonic TVs and the JVC projectors. Steve, uh, we did have some teething problems and, and still haven't uh, really been able to get that feature up and running, have we? That's right, Phil. I think both you and I have tried to use that software with VT30s. Both of us struggled. Um, I did. I had a go, actually, to be honest. Did, did you failed, manage to just... No, no, no. Okay, so <laughs> none of us it. have managed to actually get it to work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so clearly there's some problems still there. And obviously, um, Mark and I have both just reviewed Toshiba displays that also have auto calibration built into them. And once again, not a great success there either. In my case, I couldn't get it to work at all. Um, oh, really? Not, not at results, all? The results, were, yeah, the results were just dreadful. Just dreadful. I think in your case, Mark, possibly because your display seemed to have a bit more accurate starting point. Maybe that's my, my, my yeah, starting point was pretty out too. So What was it? I've not, I've not, I've not seen the, uh, the charts from yours, Steve. Yeah, it, it started off reasonably close. The I'm sure it was the case on yours. It was the only the uh, Hollywood Pro mode that could be uh, subject to the auto calibration process. Uh, and that started off with a, a really... Um, a really dark image. The gamma was was uh, sky high, sort of two point five, two point six averaging, um, which is far too dark for most people's surroundings. Uh, and the the grayscale was reasonably accurate out of the box. Um, plugged in the little tool, which is quite neat, I must say. Um, fits fits to the screen very snugly. Um, the process seems quite quite promising as you as you go. It, it does a twenty point um, grayscale check. Uh, you ask, you input your X, Y values um, to correspond to the D65 white point, 313329. It asks you your target gamma, and off it goes, and then the results come back, and, well, they were no better. In fact, they were perhaps a little bit worse, because the, uh, although the, the actual uh, delta errors for grayscale had come down slightly, uh, it had given an excess of red rather than blue along the grayscale and made everything a little bit too warm. Gamma, it, it managed to tame close to white, but didn't really do anything uh, Do anything else. Um, yeah, so it, it was pretty much an, un, an unworkable preset for, for most environments. Um, so I had to resort to, to getting in there with the, uh, the manual tools. I mean, it, it shows promise. It, it just it needs some tweaking, and I think it's software rather than hardware, although it's got to be a cheap, a fairly cheap uh, tri-stim meter, I would have thought. Well, you see, this, this was a point I was going to bring up uh, with this conversation, because what we're talking about here are, what was the price of that TV, Mark? It was £800, I think. Right, it didn't uh, come, obviously, the, the calibration tool's extra, but no one knows how much. <laughs> and, just, uh, and Steve, the, t- the TV you looked at was? Yeah, 700 quid. Right, so, I mean, we're looking at TVs that are under a £1,000. Um, we all know how unreliable uh, meters can be, uh, tri-stimulus meters or, or, or even uh, spectrum meters that cost a few hundred quid. They can be so far out of yes. whack that it's pointless even starting. So 
I think there's there's two problems. One is the, the, the equipment that's being used is just not up to spec to be able to give a decent result, especially when we are then going in and testing the results with the, the equipment that we use that costs many thousands of pounds. There's, they're going to be more accurate, and obviously you're going to see just how far off those sets are. And I think the other point is, and I'm starting to realise it with, with more of the TVs and projectors that we review this year, I think calibration is seen as a marketing tool. Uh, by a lot of these companies and yeah. I've got to say I've been completely unimpressed with some of uh, the features that have come out on projectors such as uh, the Sony which had real colour processing as soon as you moved anything on it um, made any adjustment and uh, you got artefacts in the, the highlights of the images uh, any areas like skies or, or whatever just completely uh, artefact ridden and that was just making a couple of adjustments so there's not the processing power on board for, for these things to work. Then you have to look at the Panasonic this year. Yes, they have calibration controls, but again, they don't necessarily work the way uh, you would think they should work. And for guys like us that have had loads and loads of training, loads and loads of experience, you know, we can pick up on this straight away and, and find workarounds. Some of the forum members that do this uh, as a hobby and, and something that they want to learn... They're going to be completely baffled, and and uh, yeah, I would say this year's Panasonic's are perhaps the worst place to start if you're a self-calibrator. It'll be a, a trial by a, a complete ordeal, an absolute ordeal. Yeah, well, I mean, do. you just have to look at some of the threads in the Plasma forum, and you can see how confused people are getting because, um, I mean, it's not their fault that they don't have you know the education about 3D and and, and all the rest. It's they don't understand when something's going wrong. It's not their fault. They just want to try and calibrate their TV and the software doesn't really work the way it's supposed to work. You can get good results. You can get pretty close to reference results with them, but you need workarounds. And, and the same can be said for the Panasonic projector I've just reviewed. It has a color management system on board, which brings up two boxes, uh, and you're supposed to measure the second box when you make the adjustments. It's so far out of whack, you have to use a, a workaround, which is to position the menu on the top left-hand side of the screen, ignore the two boxes, and make sure that you have your window for whichever colour it is that you're adjusting, open when you go into it, and when you make the adjustments, you measure in the window, and you press the, you make a couple of adjustments, press the execute button, and then it measures it, and it changes the the box on screen. So you're actually changing the image, but it's completely out of whack because they want you to to be doing the thing on the two boxes. It doesn't work. We've told them it doesn't work, and and still the you know the persevere with this stuff. So I guess yeah, it's, it, it's encouraging that they're, they're trying, but. You'd think, well, maybe the money would be best spent getting the gamut right out of the box rather than providing some calibration controls that don't really work. As, as a layman, I'm sitting here thinking exactly that. I mean, how hard can it be for these things to be just a little bit closer to a useful... Why isn't the cinema setting more accurate out of the box? Well, they, uh, Why is it so far out of whack? Well, some, well, some are, to be fair, Russell. I mean, you know, we have seen some quite accurate uh, out-of-the-box measurements. Um but obviously, the thing is, these are mass-produced TVs, and you can only get so accurate on a mass-produced uh, panel. Um, you know, ultimately. But the, but they come know. preset for they come preset as something that's not actually useful or, or accurate under any circumstance, do they? I mean, I've, I mean the, the the TV I've got here, the LG fifty PK five ninety, that's got the THX presets, which are supposed to give you some sort of level of accuracy out of the box. But frankly, they weren't that great, and even an idiot like me managed to improve on them. Just with a with a with a uh, you know, Spears and Munsell disc or, or you know digital video essentials, so it just it just seems incomprehensible to me that these things are sold that badly adjusted. It's like somebody selling somebody selling you a car with flat tires. 
it's, it sounds easy in theory, Russell, but actually when it comes to plasmas, you won't get any two plasmas that look the same, even if they're calibrated in, in the same factory. Because of the way the production line works, uh, they don't use meters or anything like that. It's, it's all done in the software. So they input the numbers into the software and it's supposed to make the that picture mode look that certain way. But because plasma changes over time and because you have, like Steve was saying, it's a, it's a consumer product, uh, so you have variance in components, even up to 10% variance. Yeah, um, no, no, I understand and, that. And, yeah. and even with the pioneers, uh, the Kuros, which you know everybody acknowledges that, that they were the best TVs available, they still were, were pretty awful uh, when you sat one next to another and tried to calibrate both of them to look the same. We did it at Bristol, and it took us six hours. Completely different settings on each set to get them to look. Same, yeah. um, It works well. LCD a little bit better because LCD is a little bit more stable and you know uh, swapping settings and that kind of thing is a little bit more uh, the done thing with an LCD and if it if it's well calibrated in in the factory then it should still be like that when it gets to uh, our review room when, when we test them so we have seen some that are really close uh, THX seems to be very hit and miss but then again THX don't tell us exactly what their specifications are and I've got a funny feeling that you know, you're looking at anything up to a Delta E of uh, 7 has been acceptable. Now, uh, anything under 4 is usually, you know, you won't see it. But up to 7, then, then there can be quite a bit of variance. So, again, it's it's one of these things that the enthusiasts want it. The enthusiasts want to be able to do it. There are TVs out there. There are projectors out there that do it really well. There's others where the software is a bit glitchy. And I guess, I mean, going back four or five years guys uh, this kind of thing was unheard of so th- things are moving yeah. in the right direction um, yeah it, it is very overstretching at the moment i think at the end of the day at the moment at least um you know you're, you're the best option if you if you can afford it and if, if your television is good enough or, or your display there's nothing that, that beats a, a trained professional coming in and calibrating it correctly for you uh you know, it's probably cheaper in the long run than buying meters and all that sort of stuff and you know you'll get the results that you want well, and you I mean, sit back and enjoy the image. The, the important thing there is, if you're getting a professional, in, you're getting a set of professional eyes. You're, you're getting experienced eyes. Um, yeah, uh, they can pick up on things when, when things aren't quite right, and can fix things, and can find workarounds with uh, the technology that's available, and and get a really, really good looking uh, pictures um, that are accurate. Of course, the other side of the coin is that. Um, you know, how many people actually know what an accurate picture looks like? I mean, Russell, you just mentioned there that uh, you didn't think THX mode was very good and you thought you improved on it just by looking by your eye and and using a calibration disc, which, you know, um, your eye, <laughs> that, that's personal preference. That's not standard. So. True, but I mean, I could, I could tell from just by just even just setting the grayscale that the black, that the, the shadow detail was better as opposed to completely absent and crushed, which is what it was out of the box. Yeah, I was for, getting less yeah. blow and highlights. I mean, that's that's not stuff you necessarily need. Fantastic tools to, to, to get right. And it, it does make quite a difference, the picture. People's absolutely. lips stopped glowing. I mean, yeah. That's an easy one to tell. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. There, there are some that you can do with, with discs like that. But when you get more into the advanced, uh, you know, colour gamut side of things and grayscale calibration side of things, uh, people need to understand you can't do that by eye. Um, even the best eyes in the business... Uh, can't do that, and I know there was there was one no, calibrator no. recently who was, you know, trying to say he could calibrate by eye. Absolute nonsense. There's just no way you can do it. 
Um, yeah, well, there's people out there who claim you can wander around and calibrate a subwoofer by ear. They're wrong too. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this technology, we need it. I, I think some companies are using it as um, market material. Um, Toshiba threw that one on this this year. Nobody knew that that was coming. Um, I guess we need to know who it is that they've been working with in terms of developing that and, uh, you know, how much help they can get in further improving. Um, obviously, it's the, the technology and whether that technology can, can interface with better meters. And I guess, Mark, there's been some movement with meters recently uh, in terms of budget options, which, which offer a lot more accuracy. But we're still talking about a little bit of money, though. Yeah, it was the uh, i1 Display Pro you're talking about, the uh, or the ID3, uh, given the other name. Um, I think it retails for. Uh, it's a bit confusing because there was a, there's OEM versions, aren't there? And there, and there are um, non-OEM versions. I think it's only the OEM version that works with Kalman, and I think the retail um, run about three to four hundred pounds, and the likes of Tom Hoffman. Uh, extolling its virtues big time in the American film forums. Um, it's, it's apparently very fast um, and very accurate uh, reading down, reading down low. So yeah, it's great. It's, it certainly looks like a promising product. But but again, you know, you're talking about a, a, a 400 pound meter. Um, it's it's tri stimulus. It's going to have all the problems that the other tri stimulus. Oh, it'll have, drift. So. Of course, it, yeah, it'll drift yeah, in time. So. so you might get two or three years out of it, but then you're going to need to replace it, aren't you? So. Um, yeah, it, it's an expensive hobby. If, you, if you're doing it as a hobby, it's certainly an expensive hobby, and you're more doing it for the love of it rather than getting value out of it. I would have thought. So, if you're really interested in in getting it done properly, get a pro in with the pro equipment and uh, and all the experience, like we said. So, it, I mean, it looks like guys that we're we're still waiting for uh, the killer application to come out. Then that that actually works when it comes to some kind of auto calibration. I guess what we're saying at the end of the day is hire a professional. Just a quickie on that point. You said you get your professional in, who's your two hundred pounds, and then I don't know six months down the line, you buy yourself a new Blu-ray player. And then somebody also said that plasmas drift over time. How often do you have to spend this two hundred pounds to keep the thing actually? If, if it's a, if it's near a good, the mark, if it's a good professional, uh, they they will have a a plan of action for you being their client. Um, I would imagine any calibrator worth their salt is uh, is going to offer you revisits at extremely. Uh, reduced rates in terms of just keeping the, the product taken over. If if it's a calibrator worth their salt, um, yeah, that's the service that, that they should be offering. They shouldn't just be coming in and taking your money and giving you one calibration. They should be uh, sitting down with you, explaining how things will drift over time, uh, especially with projectors and stuff like that, and they should be explaining to you how many times uh, it'll need to be recalibrated. And it won't be that often. I would say six months to 12 months for a revisit, um, and at a, 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 a reduced rate. Uh, if I, think, so, I seem to remember TH, on the THX course they were recommending like 18 months or something like that on average. Yeah, yeah. Average viewing hours. Yeah, I mean, you're buying a service, Russell, so you know, it's not just the, the one-off calibration. No, no, that's just trying to gauge what sort of ongoing cost you've got here. I mean, people are saying, people are saying oh, you know, the X meter's expensive at £400. Well, depending on the estimate from there, you, you could rack that cost up inside of, inside of a year and a half quite happily getting someone else to do it would you benefit more in the long term from teaching yourself how to do it in in my opinion yes because uh, uh, a, a lot of this is theory and you need to understand the theory 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to relate it to my own experience with subwoofers. I mean, nobody, yeah. you know, other than reading and talking to other people, nobody's really taught me anything. But I mean, it, it, you learn so much more about the subject by learning to do it yourself. You gain a far greater understanding and uh, of, of the whole subject in general. So yeah, which which is why a course like the THX calibration course works so well because um, it is a hands-on course. Um, so you're taught the theory on on day one, and then the next two days are spent actually putting that theory into practice and it's only once you get into practice and you know the theory behind it that you can start seeing seeing issues and Absolutely. and problems and so on so um the, the other thing is the accuracy of the equipment that people are using for diy calibration it's great and i encourage people to get um active and uh, start learning how to do these things and yeah you can pick up cheap meters just don't expect them to be accurate and don't expect to get the same types of results that a professional will get you so if if you want the professional, if you get someone in who is good at what they do, is going to have a plan of action for you, is going to explain everything up front, like initial costs and then recalibration costs as you go along. You know, a, a calibrator would rather have a regular client, um, so they're going to pull out the stops to, to have you as a, a regular client, and you want the best of your equipment, then that's that's the way to do it to get the absolute best. Nothing, nothing wrong with learning it yourself, just don't expect miracles. Yeah, I think that's fair comment. Yeah, not only a regular... Not only a regular client, but recommendations as well. And I don't think you'll, go, you'll get them by rushing in and rushing out again. Yeah, I mean, as Phil's already said, you're not just paying. You're, you're paying for the guy's experience, his training. He's using equipment that probably costs, you know, upwards of £10,000. When you think about a generator and, and, and meter and software, it's going to be a quantum leap above what you probably do on, you know, off your own back. Uh, and so my recommendation is always, if you want the best, get a professional so that's uh, that's auto calibration. It's still not where it should be, but you know things are moving in the right direction. We'll keep a close eye on it. Uh, we'll keep testing this uh, technology when it comes out, and hopefully one day uh, we'll be able to to recommend something for you. I, I guess in the meantime, all we can say is if you've got THX mode, use THX mode. Uh, as Russell rightly pointed out, get yourself a good test disc. Make sure it's got a good pluge pattern, a good. Uh, uh, contrast pattern good sharpness pattern make sure that your controls are set correctly for your room uh, that'll probably improve things a lot more than just using out of the box settings and if you want it done properly hire a professional so let's move things on let's wrap up IFA happened in germany and uh, steve we didn't go this year because uh, well basically everybody everything apart from a few projectors it was announced at CES back in January, which we went along to and covered. Absolutely, Phil. Yeah, um, I got to admit, um, I mean, obviously I, cov- I, I watched, saw, saw the coverage uh, on AV forums uh, when Eva was on, and uh, I can't say that very much grabbed my attention, really, other than the announcement of, uh, of JVC's new lineup uh, for next year. Personally, that was the only thing, really, that I thought was quite interesting. The rest of it was all much of a muchness, really, same, same old stuff and stuff that had already been announced uh, back in January. Uh, so we're going to talk about JVC in a second, but I guess the biggest non-story of IFA was was exactly the same big non-story at CES, which was Glasses Free TV from uh, from Toshiba. It's lenticular uh, technology. It's got nine zones on the screen. Uh, you have to sit perfectly uh, with your head perfectly uh, in line to get any kind of 3D effect, and even then it's... It's not much of an effect. Uh, a lot of the feedback coming back from IFA it, it mirrors what we saw at, at CES, which is it's a headline grabber, Steve, and it's crap technology. Yeah, it, it, I mean, we talked about it uh, at length when we were doing our CES coverage. And as you said, it's 50-year-old technology. And it's just, uh, it's an event, really. It's Toshiba trying to, um, you know, get some headlines 
with something that really is not ready for mainstream release yet. And did, did the um, set you saw at uh, CES have the the increased resolution, the ultra HD resolution? Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. The they, oh, I wasn't sure. Right, okay. What about face tracking? Did they have the face tracking too? I'm not. I'm not saying that it's going to work, but the face tracking is supposed to help with the, having multiple people sat around. With yeah, but you know, how, uh, how, yeah, I mean, how, how long is it going to take you to set up? Is it going to be like us when you try to set up for a podcast and it takes us half an hour to get, you know, all the microphones at the right level? Are you going to take half an hour before watching a film to make sure that Johnny's sitting at the right angle and, and you know Mary's sitting at the right angle? It's it's tosh. From Toshiba, it, it's you know, <laughs> fifty-year technology. Uh, it's a headline grabber. They're only doing it because people want glasses-free three D. That yeah. that's the holy grail yeah, for three D. I must say, it generated quite a bit of interest in the in the news section. But like you say, I think it's just people wanting um, wanting this glasses-free alternative this solution. So it's probably uh, until they actually see it, and then they realise yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> until they see it, when they realise it's rubbish. Yeah. I've not sworn for an hour and a half, it's not that. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the other thing that really kills me is they're putting this on a 4K, 2K panel, so they're absolutely ruining uh, a 4K, 2K panel by putting this lenticular lens on the front of the screen. Um, so what's it going to be like for 2D? Funnily enough, none of the screens that we saw at CES, Steve, were showing 2D material. Showing any 2D material, yeah, I've got absolutely no idea. But if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say not very good. Yeah, so that was the biggest non-story, Aoife. So let's get back to some of the things that, that did make the news and which look like being pretty good technology when it finally comes to market. And, and I guess while we're talking about 4K, 2K, Steve, um, uh, a couple of announcements. So Screen Sharp had an 8K by 4K screen on show. I, I don't know how useful that's going to be because there's a lot of people saying, well, 4K, 2K is pretty useless under 50 inches. And a, a lot of 4K, 2K stuff announced, as well as a projector from Sony, the VW1000, which is going to be a native 4K projector, likely to be around about £20,000, so it's going to be a, a custom install job. Um, but finally, we're, we're starting to see this technology come to market. Yeah, absolutely right, Phil. Um I'm interested in the Sony. I mean, I've, I've had very little experience of 4K projectors. I've only, I think, I've seen about two so far, and they're big, expensive ones. Clearly, it's an interesting technology. It, it, it's something that uh, I, I think might look very nice. The big issue, of course, is that obviously there isn't any content in 4K. So all you're doing is scaling up your your 20p Blu-rays or, or or high def TV. So you know. I think it's, it's the market basically looking for something else to sell us. I mean, you know, if everyone's got a high-def TV and a high-def projector, um, what can they sell us next? And people aren't interested in 3D. So 4K is the next big thing. 4K 3D after that. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if you think about it, 4K 2K, you're going to need a, a new playback device because it doesn't work with Blu-ray. Blu-ray doesn't have enough uh, capacity for it. Um, so you're going to need either triple-layer Blu-ray discs or another... Uh, playback system so that's something else for them to sell you that's something else that the market can be marketed to studios for studios to start producing content on a new playback device so then you've got two new products there you've got the tv so that's three new products you've got projectors that's four new products is it is it where we're heading in the next five years well as you say phil they have i mean they have to sell product and, and if that's how they're going to do it then yes whether we like it or not that's where we're going to head um in the same way that whether you want it or not your TV is going to be able to make to show 3D material. Um, I, I understand it. I mean, manufacturers need to sell product. I mean, that's how they, they you know, that's how they stay in business. Uh, and you need to create new product for people to buy. 
but the reality is that people have in a time of economic you know uncertainty and you know, times are hard people have already bought the high def tvs and projectors i really can't see there being a market at the moment at least for another five years for uh, for a 4k uh, product russell is 4k appealing to you no and and why well, is, is that well there's no content for it as you say, I mean, uh, but there's no content so, for sorry. 3D. No, 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 no. exactly that. Um, but, 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 it, it, I don't know. I, I'm tempted to say people will buy it simply because people keep on buying bigger and bigger megapixel cameras, even though they don't need one. The megapixel rate, the megapixel race ended at five megapixels because by then you could print a shot, you could print A3, A4 as sharp as you could possibly need to. Um, people, some people will just keep on buying things. Yeah, there'll always be adopt, early adopters who will buy stuff for the sake and of And then buying. sooner or later it'll be creep and it's like, well, you've got to buy a 4K, 2K TV because they all are anyway, you know, even though you can only play Blu-ray discs or, or whatever, you know, they'll get in there somehow. They've got to sell us something. And frankly, the build quality of a lot of the stuff you see these days means it isn't going to last forever anyway, so they might as well have something to sell you when it does crap out. I mean, I'll be interested to see what the Sony looks like um, when it comes out, out of curiosity. But even I've got to admit that I'm not particularly bothered at the moment with 4K. I can see 4K is worth for, for projection. Uh, I just don't see the point of it. I'm totally is it, though? I, well, I can see more point to it, should I say, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely what's, what's the no resolution in a cinema? Resolution in a cinema is uh, it's 2K. Mostly. Some 4K, but mostly it's 2K. Yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot of the mastering um, that's going on at the moment, a lot of the uh, uh, DI transfers that are, that are uh, being taken of film and, and so on at the moment are being done at 2K. Uh, well, and, actually, and if you look at Sith, what was Return of the Revenge of the Sith and Attack of the Clones, they were shot at 2K. Yeah. A lot of uh, digital movies are shot at 2K. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, you need the studio to, to kind of change the way they're doing things. Although, that is starting to happen. Um, a lot of these new digital cameras coming out now are uh, like the Red Epic is shooting at 5K at the moment. That's 5K natively. So there, there is the creative means for people to start shooting in that kind of resolution. Is it worth it? Um, well, I, I was lucky enough to see a, a JVC demonstration about two years ago at IFA. Uh, it was on a 180-inch screen. It was a native uh, 4K material which was shot by NHK in Japan and it was absolutely astounding to look at in terms of detail, resolution. You know, you, you could make out so much more detail. There was, there was one shot of... Uh, it was taken from one side of the mountain looking over to the other side of the mountain. You can make out individual trees on the other side of the mountain. That's how much resolution you had there. So in terms of pre projection... It'd be great, but in terms of native material, uh, that demonstration had a 19-inch rack full of uh, hard drives yeah. um, to run the material yeah. uh, because it's so there's so much bandwidth needed with it, which is why it won't work with uh, Blu-ray as it stands at the moment. So unless they come up with some kind of compression technology to make to be able to compress that to get on a Blu-ray disc or to get on a, a triple-layer Blu-ray disc, then that's one way they could deliver it. The other way is online, but uh, you know. Downloading a, a, an HD video at the moment with the internet speeds uh, in the UK, you're looking at what is it, three or four hours to even longer to to download a, a video of a decent length in uh, in 1080. So in 4K, it's going to take you what three days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they need to get the delivery standard, but it's coming because OnQ have 4K scaling on on their AVR range now. Nobody can test it though, but it, it is there. And obviously, we've had these product announcements. And now we move on to the JVCs, which are 1080p chipsets, but uh, they're using uh, a new type of technology which basically tries to 
throw the eye into thinking it's seen double resolution, Steve. Yeah, yeah, they they call it e-shift technology. Um, what they're doing is taking the, the 2K image and then um, sort of scaling that and shifting the long slightly diagonally to create sort of what they're calling you know, a 4K image, which then is brought back into a 2K image again. I mean, basically, from what I can understand, it, it, it's sort of jazzed up scaling. Um, the idea being that it's, you know, it's really good scaling; it gives you nice, 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 nice um, edges on, on on things. But you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's still a 2K projector, uh, and so you know, it's not a 4K projector; it's a 2K projector with some very flashy scaling in it. Now, obviously, um, I haven't seen it in action yet, so I'm going to hold judgment until I've seen it. Maybe, maybe it, it does look very nice, but um, it does it does sound a little bit like marketing to me. Uh, completely marketing. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll be good to see it. Um, I'm a bit concerned that there might not be an off switch for this technology, uh, which does concern me. And yeah, because you're interpolating, aren't you, all the time with this by the sounds of it. Well, well by the sounds of it, it it's, it's, moving, it's moving quickly, but it's it's basically projection, pr- projecting the same image twice but shifted. So it's uh, giving you a sort of pseudo you know, super HD image, but we've all seen this type of technology before in different means and guises. I mean, Philips have been doing all kinds of different interpolation, uh, you know, protocols and 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 so on with their TVs in the past, and every one of them's looked absolutely shockingly bad. So, I really hope for JVC's sake that um, a this does work, uh, b it looks good, and c there's an off switch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, looking at the specs, obviously, I mean, they're called the X30, the X70, and the X90, so it's gone from X3 and X7 and X9. They're, they're basically iterations on, on last year or this year's uh, projector range. Um, they've added a couple of things to it. They've added uh, the lens shift function that's been on Panasonic for some time now, which which I think is a good addition. Um, this this um, 4K e-shift thing is only on the X70 and the X90. Um, but otherwise, basically, they're, they're they're pretty much the same, aren't they? They're just they're, they're 3D yeah. um, projectors. Well, uh, JVC do um, a two-year product cycle with their chassis. So if you go back, yeah. you had the HD1 and the HD100, which were the same chassis. Uh, then we moved over to the HD line, so the HD750, 350. Uh, then you had the, the, uh, the 990, the 950, and that was the same chassis, and that was two years' worth of product. We've now had the X3, the X7, and the X9. So the X30, X70, and X90 are the same chassis, and uh, they've just made uh, some some internal changes in terms of the technology on board. It's the, it's the second year for this chassis. It's the second uh, second run out. So it will be interesting. There were a few niggles with uh, uh, the X series last year, little issues here and there with uh, bulb in terms of brightness dropping off quite severely on some units and uh, CMS wasn't quite working, um, gamma didn't work correctly and so on. So there are things for them to fix with these new models and uh, we're having our hands-on on the 5th of October. 5th of October. Uh, so in time for the next podcast, basically. So we'll be able to tell you next podcast what we think and how the technology works. So th- that was uh, interesting uh, announcements from IFA in terms of JVC and so on. And we forgot one other, which was uh, Sony. Sorry, two others. Sony and Epson are releasing new models. Uh, nice to see that Epson are finally coming out with a new model, Steve, because uh, last year's IFA, we were showing the R-series projectors and they never materialised. No, and that's a real shame because I have to say both you and I wandered into the demo and thought, oh, that looks really nice. 
Uh, and then that was it. Never saw them again. So a bit of a shame, really. It'll be interesting to see the 6,000, 9,000 when they come out. Um, because as, as you say, Phil, uh, last year's glimpse uh, was very interesting. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Uh, both of those machines will be using the same uh, chipset that's in the Panasonic PTA 5000 as well, So because that's Epson de- developed. So it'll be interesting to see how they put their machines together and, and what performance will be like from them. And the last one to mention is uh, the Sony VW95ES, uh, which is their second generation 3D projector. They nailed it with the HW30. Last year's VW90 was a big disappointment um, in terms of 3D. Um, so fingers crossed, VW95, it should be coming to us for review in the next couple of months and hopefully uh, they've nailed it again with that one. So all I need to do now is uh, thank the guys for the time this evening. So thanks, Russell, uh, Steve, and Mark. Cheers, Phil. And uh, this is Phil Hinton saying thanks very much for listening. You can check us out on Twitter, at AV Forums, uh, at Phil Hinton, at Steve Weathers, at Mark Hodgson 3 And uh, Russell, do you have a Twitter address? Good God, no. <laughs> That's a funny one. Good, and uh, yeah, Russell's on Good God, no. So, um... <laughs> So um, check us out on Twitter for all the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, some early impressions on some of the review equipment. And obviously check out the reviews on avforums.com forward slash reviews. And we'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.